Chapter 2 of A Soldier's Letters to Charming Nellie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dale Latham. A Soldier's Letters to Charming Nellie by J.B. Polly. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Humorous Incidents. Camp near Fredericksburg, Virginia, April 5, 62. Your long delay in answering my letter at Dumfries last January deserves punishment, and I can imagine no more severe than to compel you to read a lengthier communication. January and February passed with but two little breaks in the dull monotony of camp life. One was the desperate but successful resistance made on the Occoquan, quite near the enemy's lines, by a party of Texas scouts to the attack of a regiment of Federals. There were only nine of the Texans, and although the house in which they sought refuge was surrounded, they had the assailants at bay for several hours, and after killing and wounding quite a number, frightened the survivors away by a stratagem which ought not to have deceived a schoolboy. I shiver at the mere remembrance of the other incident. Company F was sent on two days' tour of picket and fatigue duty to Cockpit Point on the Potomac, where an effort was being made to establish a masked battery to play upon the shipping on the river. Brahan had become acquainted with my inborn and cultivated aversion to handling pick and shovel and spade, in fact doing any kind of manual labor and I shall always believe he arranged with Captain Cunningham the deceptive scheme to call for volunteers from the company for the picket duty that was to be done. Anyhow, such a call was made as soon as we reached the point, and, glad of an opportunity to escape hard labor, and beguiled to my undoing by a seemingly friendly wink from Brahan, I was one of the first to step to the front in response. For the first six hours, I had no reason to regret my rashness. After three months' camp life, it was positively a recreation to sit and inhale the salt atmosphere of the tidewater, listen to its music. As stirred by gentle breezes, it broke in little waves upon the shore. Gaze up, down, across the broad Potomac, and enjoy the life apparent everywhere. Then suddenly, and most calamitously, a stray norther came sweeping down from the Arctic regions. The hitherto bright sun hid himself behind threatening clouds, and rain, sleet, and snow in turn began to beat upon my face and drip unceasingly down the front and rear of my cap. Under these distressing circumstances, I awoke to the error of my ways, the foolishness of my choice, and as cheerfully as King Richard would have bartered his kingdom for a horse, I would have given a horse for a man to take my place and let me sneak back to the huge fires which my comrades, who on account of the rain had been relieved from their task, had built, and were enjoying in sheltered place a few hundred yards from the river bank. Convinced that the Yankees would never choose such weather for an attack, I found solace in the fancy that the pickets would also be relieved. But 
that straw of comfort was too fragile to lean upon. When dreary night had wrapped its impenetrable mantle over all things mundane, the captain came trudging through the snow to my post, and with a disgustingly obvious pretense of compassion, informed me that until daylight the safety of the Confederate Army would be entrusted wholly to the vigilance of Charlie Brown, Berman Gabbert, and myself. And that, as it would be, very inconvenient for an officer to tramp from the fire to the post every two hours to relieve us in regular military style. We were expected to sleep near enough to the post to wake each other. But, 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 Captain, chattered Gabbert, who, in his Dutchman, and was then on post, how, how will we know when the hours oop? Oh, I guess you can guess at them, I reckon, responded the officer, who turned on his heel and made what we thought was a beeline for the camp. Neither of the shivering monuments of man's humanity to man, whom he left behind, felt in the least inclined to apprise him that he was proceeding in the wrong direction. He had not gone fifty yards when he stumbled over a hidden log and fell headlong into a muddy branch. Rising to his feet, he sputtered entreatingly, Say, boys, which way to the camp from here? Oh, you can guess at it, I reckon, I answered instantly, repeating his words of a minute before. But Gabbert, more tender-hearted, shouted, Go up mit der Greek, Captain, and your finds are pretty quick by time. Then we arranged a program. A bed was made down to be occupied by the two not on duty, while the third kept watch for an hour, as nearly as we could calculate the time. Brown to wake me, I to wake Gabbert, and Gabbert, in his turn, to wake Brown. Fair and equitable as the plan appeared, there was too much guesswork in it to be wholly satisfactory and that was the longest, coldest, most wretched night I'd ever lived through. Each of us went on duty thirteen times before daylight. But if there was any miscalculation, it was a gabbert. For Brown and I were positive we made a liberal estimate on each hour we were on post. The Dutchman, however, declared stoutly, Mind Gott in Himmel! Boot by dam. I shall stand up after time, more as fun hour and a half. About the first of March, a rumor went flying, broadcast through the camp, that some grand movement of the army was in contemplation, but old Joe deemed it wholly unnecessary to inform us that it was to be a retreat until the morning of the 8th, and of our departure for this place. There is a member of my company whom I shall dub Jack, lest, by revealing his identity, the tale I relate should cling to him longer and closer than did that of his overcoat. Looking more to his own comfort and sense of fitness for things than to the uniformity of dress and the consequent soldierly appearance for which my friend Brahan is such a stickler, 
Jack disdainfully rejected the munificent offer of the Confederate States government to furnish him a gray and strictly military overcoat for five dollars on a credit, and expended twenty-five dollars in the purchase of one of a quality and fashion to commend itself to the most fastidious aristocrat. The first night out, from Dumfries, the weather was so intensely cold that he decided not to remove any of his garments, and so, wrapping himself in a couple of blankets, he lay down very close to a huge log fire, where, lulled by the genial warmth, he soon fell soundly asleep and began to snore at the, his liveliest and merriest gait. About midnight, Bob Murray's acutely sensitive olfactory nerves were offended by the scent of burning cloth. He had only to look once to discover as the fire had burned lower and lower, Jack had edged his back nearer and nearer to it. And at last a stray coal had lighted a flame that was playing sad havoc with his blanket and coat. Aroused by Bob's shouts, Jack did some rapid hustling around, but alas, too late to preserve the anatomy, the pristine symmetrical tout ensemble, of the cherished garment and prevent his transformation from an elegant frock into a nondescript altogether too open at the back to be comfortable and with two pointed tails hanging in front instead of the rear in short two sections whose only bond of union was the velvet collar <laughs> next morning the crestfallen owner sought to repair the damage by sewing the burned edges together but that heroic remedy, while reducing the tails to one, and that pointing in the right direction, rendered it impossible to button up the front, and kept him so busy during the day answering questions that, when night came, he was too hoarse to talk. A few days ago, General Sickles, not content with the fame won in his quarrel with Barton Key, decided to seek the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth and with this laudable object marched his brigade of negroes in the direction of fredericksburg barker of company g fourth texas one of the first confederates to discover the movement came near paying dearly for the information while on scout in the vicinity of dumfries he caught sight of a couple of darkies in blue uniform armed and equipped for battle Never a slave owner, but always wishing to be, he decided then and there to make use of his opportunities and capture and confiscate both of the likely fellows, and immediately began a stealthy approach. But like the milkmaid with her basket of eggs, by Webster's elementary spelling book, last page, who counted her chickens before they hatched, Barker counted his niggers before they were caught. For, when he got within fifty feet of them, and stepping from behind a tree, called on them to surrender, they instantly dropped their guns and took to their heels. Afraid to shoot, lest he should depreciate the value of the chattels, Barker set off in chase, and, stimulated by the thought of a prize at stake, gave his whole mind to the race to such purpose that he was reaching out his hand to grasp the collar of one fellow when the pursuer and the pursued entered upon open ground 
upon which, fifty yards' distance, was Sickles' guard detail, and two hundred yards beyond that the camp of his brigade. Taking in the situation at a glance, Barker came to an abrupt halt, while the officer at the guard shouted, Turn out the guard! Turn out the guard! as loudly as he could. The darkies were too badly frightened by the appearance of a rebel in hot chase of their comrades to obey orders, and Barker took advantage of the general confusion to regain his breath. Then, just as order began to resolve itself out of chaos, he saluted in an exact imitation of an officer of the day, and sang politely, Never mind the guard, sir, turned on his heel and was soon out of sight. General Hood, our late colonel, you must know, has been promoted to the rank of brigadier general, no sooner heard that Sickles was on the war path than he determined to gratify the gentleman's bellicosity and at the same time win honors for himself in the Texas Brigade. The members of the command, rank and file, manifested a spirit and zeal largely due, I fear, to the report circulated by some mischievous fellow that all prisoners taken were to be held as the private property of their respective captors. At any rate, on the march towards Dumfries, there was not a single laggard, and so rapid was our advance that we reached the ground where Barker had discovered the darkies about two o'clock in the afternoon of the day we started. But alas, greatly to our regret and disappointment, the doughty sickles and his nigger compatriots were non est inventus. Whether frightened by Barker's impetuous charge and cool retreat, or terror-stricken when notified of the approach of our Texas regiments, they had ingloriously fallen back to a point near the Potomac, and reinforcements then, reckless and anxious to confiscate a batch of contrabands as we were, we dared go. Properly supported by other troops, we could have easily marched ten miles farther in pursuit of laurels and Ethiopians, and not a man had fallen lame. Wholly unsupported, though, and without hope of either glory or plunder, privates and officers alike became footsore and weary. And to add to our woes, snow began to fall, and by night lay three inches deep on the ground. It was on the bleakest hillside in the whole country that we sought to rest our tired bodies that night. General Hood said we were bivouacking, but if our experiences that night were fair samples of that performance, I beg to be excused from further indulgence in the pastime. Camping will be more to my taste and comfort. Next morning, standing little on the order of our going, so only we went, we straggled back to our camp near Fredericksburg. Some of the boys disobeyed orders and seduced by the thirst produced by intense cold, halted at Falmouth long enough to be captured by the provost guard. As a result, they were each wandering up and down the color line, toting a rather heavy log. I was too high a tone to risk such punishment. But as one of my messmates not only was not, but evaded capture, I had no lack of liquid refreshments to complain of. I am much obliged to you for the hint I read between the lines of your last letter. 
but it will do me little good, I'm afraid, as, as long as the cavalry company is allowed to stay out of danger. Observation has already taught me how attractive the uniform of an officer is to the ladies. Privates are nobodies up here, when a fellow with bars on his collar and chicken fixins, as the boys call them on his arms, come into view. But I'll not despair. My lady's last letter was all it should be. Optimism is a fellow's best hold when his patriotism denies him certainty. Note 1. In common with most of his comrades, the author implicitly believed the report originating, he supposes now, in the mind of some reckless wag, that General Sickles commanded a brigade of Negroes. The scout Barker insisted that he chased Negroes, and when he had run them into their camp was confronted by Negroes. Whether his assertions were true or false, they corroborated the report. We were as credulous then in respect to the northern people as they were in regard to us. As a historic fact, Negroes were not organized into the military commands until late in the year 1862. If Barker really chased Negroes, they were probably mere individuals of the race who had been permitted to enlist with the white company. End Chapter 2 Recording by Dale Latham